Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. It's hard to say thanks be to God after a passage like that, isn't it? <laughs> and I do want to warn you, um, this sermon contains adult content. <laughs> so are there any children left in the congregation? I'm serious. Um, they may want to leave now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit may rest upon us now as we approach the study of your Holy Word, and that he may indeed make that Word a living message to our souls for the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, <clears throat> aside from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wonder if anyone here this morning can tell me what may have been the most famous sermon ever preached. By the way, I'm glad that Brian Mackey isn't here, because last time I asked a question, he knew the answer. <laughs> anyone, any ideas what may have been the most famous sermon ever preached? Well, I don't have any statistics to back me up, but I'm certain that uh, one of the top contenders has to have been a sermon that was preached to a congregation in Enfield, Connecticut, on a hot July day, way back in 1741. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards, a distinguished graduate of Yale University, and who would later be appointed president of what was to become Princeton University. Along with the Anglican preacher, George Whitfield, Edwards was one of the leading, uh, the leaders, I should say, of that remarkable spiritual revival known as the Great Awakening. It was a movement of the Holy Spirit that profoundly touched the hearts and changed the lives of thousands of people as it swept across New England uh, in the mid-1700s and indeed reached as far as Nova Scotia. The title Edwards gave to this particular sermon was this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you find its title forbidding, its contents are nothing less than soul-shaking. By my estimate, the sermon would have taken close to an hour and a half to preach. And it was around the midway point 
that Edwards thundered forth to the congregation with these words. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready at every moment to singe it, burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Well, I'll leave it to you to imagine the rest if you dare. Now, I have to say I have never been a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I'm really one of those who believe that the carrot uh, is generally far more effective than the stick, that the glories of heaven are far more inducive to faith than the terrors of hell. Yet, I have to acknowledge that Jesus himself warned about the prospect of hell for those who turned their backs on God. He declared to the people of Capernaum who refused to accept his message that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the inhabitants of Sodom than it would be for them. He cautioned his followers, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is far better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Think too of Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man ended up in flames and anguish, desperate that Lazarus might even dip the tip of his finger in water so that he might have a droplet to cool his tongue. At the Last Supper, Jesus warned his disciples, if anyone does not remain in me, they are thrown away like a branch and wither, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. In fact, it's been claimed, and I don't think without merit, that Jesus had more to say about hell than anybody else in all the Bible. And so perhaps we should not be surprised when we come across it again in this morning's verses from Hebrews. We read of a fearful expectation of judgment. And those chilling words at the conclusion of the passage, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the word in both those cases in the original Greek is phoberon. Maybe you could hear behind that word our English word phobia. And hence words like acrophobia, the fear of heights, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Or how about this one, odontophobia. You know what that one is? The fear of dentists. <laughs> well, it all reminds me of my days back in elementary school, way back in the Dark Ages, when to be sent to the principal's office was a punishment you sought to avoid at all costs. Who knew what penalty was going to be meted out at you behind that thick oak door. But at least you came back from the principal's office. <laughs> but
But here, there is no coming back. Now, lest I leave you with the notion that uh, God is some kind of celestial killjoy, constantly on the lookout for people to punish, let me remind you that there is a whole other side to the coin. Ours is a God who cries aloud to his people, As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their evil ways and live. And he pleads, Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And our Lord Jesus is the good shepherd, isn't he? Who seeks out his sheep that have strayed and brings them back into the fold. And yet there remains that awful possibility of an eternity without him. And so it is that our verses from Hebrews this morning contain that stark warning to those who might be tempted to abandon the faith. That if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, this connects with one of the, Hebrew, sorry, one of the themes that has been in the background of Hebrews all along as we've been reading it for how many weeks? And it is likely that the reason it was written, um, that, that this was written in the first place, and that is that one by one, and for various reasons, people had been dropping away from the community of believers. And for the author of Hebrews, that was no light matter. It's not like dropping out of a bowling league or even dropping out of school. No, dropping away from following Jesus is a matter of life and death. Now, for some people, that brings up the nettled question of whether it's possible for a believer to lose their salvation. And that's an issue I'm not going to deal with right now. But no matter which side of that debate you stand on, you don't have to have been a Christian for all that long before you notice that um, uh, there are people who at one point or another appear to have had a genuine faith, and yet somehow along the road, they've left it behind. Christian author Frank Viola offers a list of reasons why this happens. And here are a number of them that he highlights. The nasty way that Christians can sometimes treat each other. Disputes in church can often arise over what are really non-essential issues, and church members can become over-invested in them to the point where they lose perspective altogether and treat those with a different perspective as though they were enemies. The simplistic answers that they have been given to complex and difficult issues The world can present us with challenges that strike at the roots of our faith. Yet sometimes these questions end up being treated with suspicion or simply dismissed with a pat answer instead of being dealt with openly and honestly. Disappointment with God as the result of a tragedy or seemingly unanswered prayer. The busyness of a life that doesn't leave room for prayer or engagement in the community of faith. 
a legalistic understanding of the faith that demands perfection and can only lead to self-reproach, disappointment, and even, in some cases, serious depression. Well, all of these, and I'm sure there are more, uh, can be factors in people slipping away from the faith. And no doubt you could list some others that you're aware of as well. Indeed, in my experience, however, one of the prime factors has been adultery. One of the biggest disappointments in my ministry has been to see leading laymen, men who have a deep and articulate understanding of the faith, Christian leaders, become involved in secretive affairs that ended up undermining both their marriages and their faith. And I'm sure that many of you could name any number of Christian rock stars who have fallen for the same reason in recent years. Famous preachers and teachers, megachurch pastors and authors among them. And today, the internet adds an additional highly powerful factor as well, pornography. It's no longer a matter of hiding Playboy magazine under your mattress as, as it was it was when I was young. Our high-speed fiber optic cables can bring full-color images and videos right into the privacy of our homes. And those images can be deeply addictive. So what are we to say to all of this? How are we to deal with it? I could tell you that you'll have to wait till next week's exciting episode and the weeks that follow. <laughs> After all, we still have three chapters of Hebrews left to read. But before I conclude, I want to mention one author who has been particularly helpful to me recently in thinking this whole issue through. And he's not a Christian, but a secular Jew. And uh, his name is Jonathan Haidt. And that's his book. It goes under the unlikely title of The Righteous Mind. And his thesis is this. We often think of our mind, our rational faculty, as what is most important in giving direction to our lives and guiding our decisions. But hate says no, that as often as not, it's our emotions that guide us. And he summarizes it with a simple picture. So picture, if you can, an elephant driver up there on top of an elephant. Now, by and large, the elephant has been trained to be compliant it will go wherever the driver commands. But if for one reason or another, the elephant decides to take a different path, the hapless driver is forced to go along for the ride, isn't he? Well, the elephant, says hate, is that part of our makeup that is based on feelings and sensations, while the driver represents our rational faculties. And by and large, it is our minds that guide us through life. But there will be times when the elephant of our emotions takes over. And I don't imagine you have to think for very long to remember occasions when that has probably happened in your life. So what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, perhaps one of the weaknesses of our Protestant tradition 
is that we often tend to place our emphasis on the mind at the expense of our other faculties. We engage primarily on a cerebral level and only secondarily, if at all, on a gut level. Now, I know that part of that is to avoid manipulation. And we all know of people who have been manipulated by uh, various preachers who uh, aim at people's uh, baser nature. And yet, if our faith is to be fully rounded, it needs to involve the whole of us. For example, how crucial music is to Christian experience. And even Paul, who seems like such an intellectual type, encourages us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And besides, I'm told that singing helps to release endorphins that contribute to both our mental and our physical health. And how crucial is fellowship? By this, I mean not just that casual cup of coffee that we're going to enjoy after the service, and I want to say that is an important part of church life, but engaging with fellow believers on a considerably deeper level. Having others you can share with about the important things of life. People you can trust to stand with you without judging even in the most difficult times. And yet, who have the courage at some point to say, get with it, when that's what's needed. And I would be remiss too if I didn't stress the fundamental importance of developing a habit of taking time to be with God on a daily basis, coming before him in prayer and praise, reading his word, and simply enjoying being consciously in his company. Yes, it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yet, what could be more wonderful than to be held in the firm grip of a loving Father who vows never to leave us or forsake us? What could be a greater privilege than to walk with a Savior who promises to be with us to the end of the age? What could be more amazing than to be filled with a spirit who will be with us forever? And so as we hold these verses from Hebrews in one hand, let's balance them with these words from Philippians in the other. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Could we take a moment to pray? Lord Jesus, we can't begin to thank you that on the cross you endured all the horrors of hell for us. We thank you that you have come to us and given us your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And I pray that by the power of that same Spirit, 
You would help us to walk with you all the days of our life and into the eternity of your kingdom. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Now is that time in the service when we gather around the Lord's table. And I wonder if someone could pass me one of those little cups. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's stand for me. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. I realize with age, I'm getting out of practice, and I left out part of the service. <laughs> so, after eating the bread, let me read this. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with faith and with a true heart. As we come now to the Lord's table, hear the words of welcome our Savior Christ offers to all who genuinely repent and turn to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen also to the beloved disciple John. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bow our heads now because Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit to bear our sins in his body on the cross. We bow in reverence, in respect, in awe and adoration for the person of Christ, for the words of Christ, and for the sacrifice of Christ. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, so that as we share in these gifts of bread and wine, our worship in this moment will bring full honor to you and genuine consolation to our souls. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And having shared in the bread early, in the same way Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until until he comes. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have made yourself known to us in the breaking of the bread. Cause our hearts to burn within us that we may share the good news that you are alive and reign forevermore. Amen. Let's remain standing as we sing closing song.
peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. This is the story of the cross. So, so much that when we did our very worst, Jesus gave his very best and he died for all of us. This is the story of the cross that we were broken, we were lost. So then you built a bridge to us, took our the meaning of the cross that I 
story of the cross. This is the story of the cross. The Father loved us so, so much that when we did our very worst, Jesus gave his very best and he died for all. 